bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good afternoon and uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is the the sixth session that we've uh, hosted now in the Navigating the Energy Transition series uh, hosted by RBC. Um, today, we're going to focus on how we finance the uh, renewable build-out that is needed as we move towards net zero. Uh, obviously, this is a, a very topical subject. Uh, I, for one, have had a, a lot of questions around the, uh, the UK uh, offshore leases that happened very recently and how uh, PPAs may help to deliver those alongside CFDs. Uh, so I'm sure we'll have a lot of topics to discuss. Uh, I'm hosting the, the session today with my colleague, Fernando Garcia, who works with me in the utilities research team at RBC. Uh, and I'll hand it over now to Fernando to introduce the panelists. Good morning, everyone, and thank you again for joining. Uh, we have uh, three speakers today who will each uh, give their perspectives uh, on how to finance the energy transition. Uh, we have King Kitts, Director of Market Modeling at uh, Econ Strategic uh, Consulting, who has a long experience in forecasting long-term power prices. Unfortunately, Miguel Marroquin from our new energy is ill today and cannot uh, attend as planned, but his colleague, uh, Nicolas Brost, who is a partner at our new energy, has kindly uh, stepped up. Finally, we have Mark Saar, who has up RBC Project Advisory and Finance Team, and who is uh, based in Canada. Uh, we want to make this session as interactive as possible, so if you uh, do have a question, please uh, submit in in online through the system and we will try to get to as many as possible okay uh, thanks fernando um while we we wait for some of those questions to come in uh, maybe i can get the session started with a with a question for kim um obviously one of the key uh, determinants or or uh, uh factors to consider when uh setting ppas is the the expectation for for long-term power prices at the end of any contracted period. Um, perhaps you can talk a little bit around your perspectives on how you see uh, power prices developing over the longer term, um, especially in, well, especially with the uh, potential for cannibalization from, from further renewables development. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, thanks, RBC team, for having us on. Um, let's, let's dive straight in. Um, to cut a very long story short, um, I'm an economist. So when I look at how it is that prices should evolve or what they should evolve towards, I'm always looking at the cost of new entry. So in the context of renewables, especially PV, and let's use that as an example, though it's also relevant for wind, um, the LCOE, the levelized cost of electricity. So in effect, if you think that the, the, the LCOE is really towards where we think the realized price for the different technologies should converge towards, obviously there's a series of factors which influence that particular benchmark. So what is the capital cost? Um, what, what are the financing parameters there, there too? Which is where we get into the question of 
you know, do you need PPAs and how do PPAs help you secure financing for those particular projects, debt to equity ratios, et cetera. O&M costs will also matter. And clearly, depending on the is a factor. Are you fixed axis, uh, single axis modules that are allowed to tilt with the sun, track the sun with trackers? Uh, do you have bifacials? You know, there's a series of other technological improvements. On wind, we have issues around what the sizes of the actual machines will actually be, the, the rotor lens and things which allow you to capture more energy from an existing resource. So that gives us an idea as to where it is that prices will go. Um, anyone is entitled to take their own view on those particular movements over time. This, the, but the important thing is that today we know what the current situation is, which is that we're basically in a, in a situation where we don't have a lot of renewables around in general, in a general context. We're not at what I describe as a saturation point. So we can definitely go a lot further where, where, from where we are today. And the sort of concept that I try to bring to the table, which is linked to this idea of Globalization is everyone understands more or less the, the issues around the duck curve. The famous duck curve where you have an, a, a daily demand profile, and then in the middle of the day, say the sunshine is going to be eating away at what your residual thermal uh, requirement is going to be. And therefore, there's an expectation that in the middle of the day, prices will go down. That is true, and I, and I fully support that view. However, you have to bear in mind that there is a certain degree of flexibility on the system, whether through hydro in countries where we have a lot of, uh, for example, in Iberia, we have quite a lot of hydropower stations. I know we're all accustomed to going to the sun in the summer, oh well, in the old days when we could travel a lot more. But actually we have a lot of sort of pretty big reservoirs in the north, south, center, east and west. Portugal's quite the same. That, that degree of flexibility allows you to, to minimize the impact of these sort of big depressed prices. But what definitely will happen is as more and more renewables comes onto the system, the general price trend will drop. Direct PV more specifically, or when it is that wind will be blowing, whether how it affects wind, will also be two things to bear in mind. In general, there's wind in Spain and Iberia basically all year round. Nighttime, daytime, winter and summer. A little bit less in the summer, but there's still quite a lot of wind around. Um, so in general, what happens is that the profile of dispatch of wind is actually quasi-base load. So it tends to be always track the base load price. So if you think that in medium term, um, wind, whatever your LCO wind will be, is more or less where the base load price will go. And then your PV price is really about the LCOE thereof. So you get some sort of, whilst I can make things very complicated and talk around various issues, this most simplifying driver for where it is that you see prices going is your view on LCOE and how quickly capacity will be added to the system to allow you to get to those particular conversion points. So and those points are what I call a sort of saturation point. Are we far from it? Are we close to the cliff edge? We've still got a long way to go. I don't think as far as the National Energy and Climate Change Plan suggests, because I think they've made some basic errors of calculation in those numbers, but certainly we have, we have a long way to go yet. Okay, um, thank you for that. That's very interesting. And um, maybe turning to you, Nicholas, uh, yeah, obviously, when people are looking to sign PPAs, they're going to be factoring in long-term power prices. But but what do developers need to have in place in order to secure the best PPAs? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I think the, the easy answer is there has to be a market in place. And uh, we're fortunate that, let's say, from a Spanish point of view, the market is very well developed. So if a certain counterparty wants a certain product, it can be sourced. Um, we're seeing other European and let's say European but not EU countries in Europe where we, have, we haven't seen that 
such a level of advancement within the um, the regulated power markets are the, the uh, so. First of all, you need a market. Then, when people approach us, uh, it's often because they, they they just want to to find an off taker, and then they want to us to close the PPA. But in actual fact, we 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 generally have a three step approach, and that means that we actually start with a structuring phase because it's very different from person to person, from, from investor to investor, what exactly it is that, that really makes sense for them and why they're even signing a PPA um, and in the end, should they sign a PPA? So it's only once we get to understand all the facets of the, of the business case, can we even start coming up with the right PPA product? So I think that's the, the key message is that to, to sign an attractive PPA, you know you need to know exactly what kind of PPA you're looking for. Um, I think the, the best example we usually give, and, and given our, I would say, large uh, uh, position in the, in, in the in Spanish market, we, we do cover quite a lot of PPAs, and we haven't actually signed the same PPA twice. Um, this can obviously be, um, the, from an investor point of view, also the off-takers vary from, from time to time because you know they'll have fulfilled their appetite and then they will move on. But um, it really does come down to that even though everyone, when they start out in the structuring, they're looking for the same product, they're often not. Uh, every investment fund has a different risk strategy. They have a different view. And, and for us, it's therefore we we need to know exactly what kind of a belief system each uh, potential uh, investor has. You know, that being said, what is their view on cannibalization? What is their view on long-term power prices? What's their view on on resource risk? And um, that is something that. Uh, that needs to be taken into account. And, and obviously, as you mentioned earlier, and then Fernando as well, a big component is financing. So whatever suits the investor will also, in most cases, need to suit um, the financing banks. Um, so, so that is the most important thing, is basically just to, to narrow down what it is that will improve your business case the best or will make the, the business case work. And then once you once you have the product, um, we would then say it is a, a, a much easier step to approach the market. There's no need to approach 20 or 30 off-takers getting bogged down in long discussions because at any given time, there are probably only going to be three to five uh, competitive uh, off-takers for each product. I think that after the comments of Nicolas, uh, probably a good idea to uh, to jump to 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 Mark, you know. Uh, so after signing the PPA, is uh, most of the work uh, done to get financing, or there are other uh, important issues uh, to consider, and also uh, how difficult is uh, to obtain uh, financing without a PPA? Uh, what are the key differences in project financings? Uh, for uh, merchant versus uh, contracted assets. Uh, thank you. 
Sure, great, and thank you for having uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to to, uh, to participate here. Um, regarding the question of what other work needs to be done to achieve financing for projects, typically conditions to close and fund for renewables projects um, include having all permits and and no appeals outstanding thereof. There have been a uh, a few cases of financings that have been challenged, uh, trying to close into appeal situations, and 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 that 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 uh, that, that can just be a non-starter for some banks. Um, other aspects, having interconnection responsibilities and logistics between the project and and the, the grid co um, executed, having the EPC contract. Uh, signed and in the case of wind projects, it's, it's typically two contracts: the the turbine supply and, and and balance of plant for for the site. And then lastly, lenders will always require reports from a number of independent consultants. Uh, these would typically include the independent engineer, a market consultant, an insurance consultant. Um, if it's a, a bond deal, a, a, model, a model auditor, and and I would say very recently with the uh, um, October 2020 advent of Equator Principles 4, for, for some projects in sensitive environments or with Indigenous uh, community consultation requirements, lenders will require a supportive report from an independent environmental and social consultant. Um, re regarding debt pricing, uh, this would this would have been a more interesting discussion, I think, any time in the last 12 months of, of pandemic. But I would say at this point now that credit spreads for for project bonds and bank deals in, in North in the North American renewable space have have finally really come back to pre-pandemic norms. And I, I would say for bank deals in the renewable space and, and, and probably only this space uh, have they have even pierced. Uh, the the pre-pandemic lows we see L plus 100 area for for one to two year construction loans, LIBOR plus 125 to one and three eighths for typically for um, uh, the the mini perm mini perm approach that you see on a lot of uh, North American projects and these are all quite low by historical norms but we have also seen some offsets. Um, given the very low rate environment uh, uh, contagion from term loan B convention with the introduction of, of LIBOR floors to, to some bank deals, which we, we, we didn't uh, used to have. Um, hold co back leverage where it's available and, it's, and that's highly case by case is, is roughly at the LIBOR plus 400 area. And on the question of, of uh, contracted versus merchant projects, merchant greenfield project pricing is, is back to pre-pandemic pre-pandemic area of, of around the, the L plus 350 area. The, the key thing to note that is that all in debt coupons, whether you're talking about the swap equivalent in the bank market or fixed coupon uh, private placement market, um, these all in debt coupons are still at all time lows uh, that we've never seen as low sovereign bond yields in the, in the US and Canada uh, persist. That window is slowly closing as these bond yields have been creeping up, but RBC has led a number of long-term investment grade project finance private placements in the in recent months in the low 3% coupon range and even sub 3% for, for some medium tenors. Um, and we're seeing the same kind of all-time low in 144A project bonds and, and high-yield project bond trading yields. So it's, it's just been a great time and continues to be a great time to be an issuer, whether um, uh, renewables or, or, or midstream assets. On the topic of uh, debt sizing metrics for contracted versus merchant assets in the, in the bank market, um, you typically see contracted wind and hydro 
have debt sizing target metrics of 1.35 debt service coverage ratios on a, on a P50 resource basis. Solar is a little tighter um, given you know less dispersion and in, in, in the resource variability um, uh, gets sized to the 1.25 P50 area. And, and generally a P99 one times is a, a floor for all renewables. And it, it, it tends to be the operative constraint, the, the P99 one time for, for wind and, and run of river hydro projects, uh, which have more year to year dispersion in, in resource. Um, battery storage, uh, which is a, a growing sector, um, we, we've seen financing you know, as low as one times, 1.2 times on availability or, or capacity payments only. And, um, and that's an emerging sector. Um, I think we're going to see more, more of that. Generally, merchant renewables, debt service coverage ratios, uh, target debt coverage ratios are in the 2 to 2.5 size. Um, in, in the bond market, it, it's interesting because as, as opposed to the banks, uh, bank market's use of, of P50 resource numbers, rating agencies generally focus on P90 resource forecast. And we found a fair bit of variability amongst the five rating agencies that do do project, uh, project finance bond ratings. And we definitely advise developers getting educated on the sweet spots of each agency's, agency as we've actually used um, a spectrum of different agencies on recent deals. Uh, depending on on what the particular you know uh, weak link risks might be, and and so it's it's important to effectively shop agencies. But in in the renewable sector, um, we're seeing wind uh, wind deals get uh, investment grade wind deals uh, get rated on a P again on a P ninety resource basis at one point two five to one point four uh, DSCR minimum DSCR solar a little tighter one point two to one point four um, and uh, and 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 that's uh, again uh, a fair bit of uh, variability from agency to agency. Thanks, Mark. Maybe um, you, you obviously talked a lot about the the different drivers there, but a couple of things. If um, how, how does the the cost of project financing differ uh, between the sort of sort of number of smaller renewables companies for the larger integrated names? But how would you see the cost differential there, or is it? down to the asset so the parent doesn't matter as much uh, and then also um, what's the difference between project financing on a renewable asset versus a regular asset I mean is there a, a discount for being green now yeah I would say there's not much difference um, in, 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 in in structures or pricing and given this in the scale uh, for us uh, different scales of project given that there's significant bank and private park, uh, private placement market appetite in the renewable sector. With the caveat that there there is a floor, I, I would say, in the scale where developers of, of all kinds of assets just find non-recourse debt finance not worth it. The required debt arranger fees, the, lend, the lender's independent consultant fees, legal and loan dot costs, they're all pretty insensitive to financing scale. So at too small a project, they become an aggregate, pretty daunting when expressed as a percentage of project costs, and, and developers just choose not to choose to uh, pursue that route. So the, the threshold can obviously depend depending on, on, on um, or vary depending on sponsor bank relationships, but it might be 75 to 100 million or financing side. Um, but there is definitely benefits to financing a, a diversified asset portfolio of renewables versus single assets. 
Um, for example, we, we took a, a portfolio that was a, a mix of wind and solar projects to, to rating agencies. And, and just, you know, as I talked about earlier, often on a single asset, uh, you know, P99 one times DSER might be your, your debt constraining factor, but having different assets you know, allowed us to, to, to put forth a view of, of you know, a non-concurrence non of the, the P90 resource from asset to asset and, and um, you know, led to a material formulaic um, leverage bump in, in terms of, uh, of, of how rating agencies looked at it. Um, you know, a question comes up invariably for developers, do I you know, use bank or bond or private placement uh, debt financing? In the European renewables market, it's, it's really uh, only long-term bank project finance, but in the North American market by comparison, yes, long-term uh, project finance bank providers play as well. However, the predominant financing approach is typically a five to seven year bank mini perm to a, power, a private placement takeout at project completion. Um, although there's maybe you know 750 million to a billion dollars per deal available in the long-term bank market, um, and, and that's really only for the the, the, the best and, and and most well-banked sponsors. Um, by and large, developers like to recycle bank capital or bank gunpowder for their their next construction project, and and choose private placement takeouts for the long-term post uh, COD capital structure. Um, you had a question on whether just being green alone confers uh, a, a conscious advantage. And I'd say for the, the, the bank market, again, not really on a, on a conscious level. However, where it's manifested is that the renewable sector remains very heavily banked. Um, and, and in a market, and especially in a North American market, that's seeing less project finance deal supply uh, overall, uh, than most of the past decade, and this is largely due to a hiatus in some of the other traditional big dollar financing sectors like LNG projects or, 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 or pipelines. So what we have is possibly you know, overstaffed and, and ESG-directed project finance desks chasing renewables quite hard. Um, at, at RBC, we're one of the few banks that remains active leading deals right across the entire energy and power sectors in North America. And, and that gives us you know some pretty good insights to the market and i i would say from various loan syndication processes that we've led um that um, um global banks uh are, are somewhat constrained in how they play in north america we put it this way there's definitely more banks that will look at a renewables deal than an lng deal and more that will look at an lng deal than um, a gas pipeline so although lng and natural gas uh, or our pipelines are both natural gas. LNG projects have you know, can have more of an energy transition theme. Um, and the other issue with pipelines is they just have a demonstrably higher community stakeholder, you know, headline risk for for banks. And then finally, you know, there's definitely a lot more banks that will look at a, a gas pipeline than 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 a crude or or liquids pipeline. So consequently, renewables deals get bid pretty hard. Um, it's a it's a bank, maybe you know, I, I would say possibly even overbanked sector, and they and they do get priced uh, tighter than other sectors. The same holds to a lesser degree in the bond or private placement sector, where a deal with ESG attributes just brings more care from investors. Um, you know, I think it, it, you know can quantify it. I think 
In bond markets, there's recently been parallel corporate issuance of green and non-green bonds exactly to try to isolate new issue value to green. Um, and, and, and from what I understand, it's, it's kind of on the order of one to two basis points. So, so some, some delta and, and, and some uh, definitely some emerging traction there. Uh, so, Keen, I would like uh, to move now to the uh, role of uh, technology in the energy uh, transition. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of uh, moving parts here. Uh, what do you think could be the role of uh, batteries, uh, demand-side response, or even hydrogen in long-term power prices? Go back to a view that in the middle of the day, we have all this solar generation, especially in somewhere like Iberia. So um, in the sun shining, it happens to be the summer, demand's a little bit depressed. Um, do we bother with the fact that the spot market prices are likely to be extremely low, if not negative? As an anecdote, by the way, the Spanish market still operates under a cap and a floor of 180 euro per megawatt hour and zero. So you can't technically get negative prices. You can get negative prices in ancillary services, but not yet in the spot market. That will change. We need more flexibility. Um, as that, because we're capping the flexibility uh, with respect to where prices in the day ahead market can go, it sort of affects the valuation for things such as batteries, for example. So if you just do a plain vanilla assessment of how much, whether the additional investment in a battery today makes sense, you might, you, it might not work for you because you could be sort of doubling the cost of your PV investment, for example, and you just won't be able to make the numbers quite work. However, the thing about the technology is that it's well known and the costs are all coming down as well. So as we track downwards, the opportunity for batteries or, you know, either with combined with PV or with wind, it doesn't really matter. But I, I always think about it in the context of PV because it has a much more narrow window of dispatch. So what you really want to do is take the excess, which is naturally going to be arising in the middle of the day and see if you can re-dispatch in the, uh, you know, evening or nighttime uh, uh, hours, right? Instead of having thermal plant give you uh, some sort of backup. For now, hydro is doing that job and it does it wonderfully well. But what if there's a dry year or things like that? So I think the, the interest in batteries will be for more aggressive. There's been a very recent change with respect to the positioning of batteries you're talking about regulation and does it matter? Um, the, what is the role of batteries? How are they accepted by the system operator as a, a, as a dispatch unit? And that has been clarified. So now you can basically go out and deploy batteries, either integrated within a particular uh, project or on a standalone basis. But we don't have the flexibility or we don't have the market as you tend to find in the U.S. in particular or North America in general or Australia, for example, where you're getting contracts with the transmission system operator basically to develop battery technology on a capacity-based payment basis. That doesn't exist. In fact, in Spain, we don't even have a capacity market. Um, eventually, we will have to have one. So that will change the mechanics as to, I should say, the bankability of batteries per se. So unless you're very focused on a vertically integrated strategy where you're basically looking to make money from providing uh, a final service to a lot of um, uh, uh, final consumers, batteries are going to be a, a bit on the uh, you know, low burner for now. Watch, watch, watch for them as things deploy or develop over time. And as we get wider spreads between peak prices, or I say, whenever it is that the prices happen to be high relative to sort of middle of the day or when it's extremely windy. Uh, very recently, we've had a lot of wind in Spain. A, a storm comes along 
restrictions on the French-Spanish border, and we've actually seen prices of zero in Portugal and zero uh, and in 16 euro cents per megawatt hour in Spain, whilst in France they've been at 45 or plus. You know, complete separation of market pricing um, and nothing to be done about it. We'd, okay, hydrogen is another interesting thing. Um, it's being driven largely by government diktat. You know, this whole uh, idea around decarbonization of the economy. One of them we all recognize is that there'll probably be a, quite a lot of electricity in the middle of the day when renewables are, are in full flow, if you will, uh, particular PV, where you, you won't be able to know what to do with all the energy. Either you store it and redispatch, or alternatively, you try and turn it into something else that may have uh, a use, hence the story around hydrogen. And uh, you've all been invited to God knows how many webinars and seminars to talk about hydrogen. Um, there are some critical benchmarks to be thought about. If you have a view as to what your gas price is per MMBTU, or as they use in more in Europe, which is per megawatt hour fuel equivalent, um, you have to learn a whole bunch of little um, 3.412, uh, 3.6, a little bunch of conversion factors to use in your mind. In hydrogen, it's talked about in context of, say, US dollars or euro per kilo, per, per kilo kilo of actual thing. The problem with a kilo of hydrogen at room temperature is it's exactly that. It's basically a, a, you know, a, a gas. So we have a problem around what to do with a gas, how to move it, how to store it, and how to basically make use of it as a secondary, as a secondary fuel. Could it replace natural gas in gas turbines? Yes, it could. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't uh, adjust uh, an existing gas turbine to burn hydrogen. So that is one of the issues that certain people are beginning to think around. But we haven't seen a lot of movement there. My point is that that would be right. If you're, if you're observing greater separation of prices as a result of renewables coming into the system, um, on average, I should say, they should all be converging on LCOE. But that doesn't excuse the fact that there'll be a lot of ranges on an hourly basis. So yes, electrolysis uh, to take advantage, um, basically create hydrogen. Maybe you turn it into ammonia to move it around as a liquid. You know, there's a whole bunch of conversations to be had about that. And another one that's related to to the whole issue of technology is, um, I'd say, the transmission grid. Um, we we in in Iberia we do have limits to what we can uh, deal with with the rest of France. But you know, between Portugal and Spain, it's pretty much a single market. And Red Electrica, the Spanish TSO, is quite, you know, has a quite sophisticated system. In the old days, they were accustomed to taking, say, coal from the north and transporting it south. Then gas, then there was a dash for gas that came usually from the south. So they, they managed to rework the system to operate from a, from a southern to northern axis. Now they're all quite uh, diversified. So being able to use the transmission grid and being clever about that, we should expect those type of developments. We should expect an, an expansion of the types of ancillary services that may be offered to the market, which is, again, when you talk to talking about, uh, you know, listening to Mark speak about the degree of sophistication from the banking uh, or the financing investor angle in, in North America, we're far more, we're far less advanced from those perspectives. But there's certainly, you can't talk to a bank about, capacity value and energy value yet you know they're all very much we have a we have an energy only market here for unfortunately and but, but i say unfortunately but i'm only saying for now in due course uh, the flexibility that exists should basically be able to be monetized and there'll be more interest that's when technology is going to really be interesting Thanks, Ken. Uh, so, Nicolaus, uh, probably moving from this uh, medium term uh, solution uh, for flexibility to something that may be available in the shorter term. Uh, what is your view of uh, some players already commenting 
that in the medium term will be interested to sign joint TPAs of uh, solar plus maybe wind or even including batteries as well. Uh, do you think it might be interesting at, at, at this point uh, when this uh, might happen? So maybe starting with the, your final question, when this could be happening, it is already happening. Uh, we're working on a, on a PPA in, in, in Denmark at the moment where, where, we, where there's a PV plant, a wind farm, and a hydrogen uh, plant in, 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 in behind the same metering point. So I think it is something that very much is happening and it's something we will see happening. And I think it's important to, to let's say, follow on what, what, what Kim said, that these are driven by different things. The need for introducing, just combining PV and wind um, will probably make be less important unless you're factoring in like shared grid costs and something like that, lowering your, your LCOE for the entire plant. Uh, whilst the storage aspect brings in a different type of product that was ancillary serves, it becomes a completely different uh, product. And it's something that maybe as a standalone isn't as... Um, as valuable a component to add, you know, if you're doubling the price of your plant. But what it does do, it does buy you protection against hours where where um, power prices are very very low. And as Kim said, you know, it's only a question of time before prices can also go negative. So I think in 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 general, we have to say that yes, we are going to see and we are seeing, but in reality it's more going to be driven by the markets and people are going to be forced into making these kind of choices because as more and more PPAs are signed, they're going, there's going to be less interest in profile products, meaning that the closer you can come to resist, to selling a, what is essentially a base load profile where wind and PV might be, um, let's say, um, fitting together very well and, and being able to allow you to offer such a product to the market means will make your your PPA more interesting to, to the market and you should then also be more competitive. So I think the market is probably going to push in that direction. So it'll be more out of need than, than, than anything else. But I think we also need to take into consideration from a purely uh, project point of view, it adds a lot of complexity. And I think that unless there is some serious value driver behind it, it's it's going to be less attractive than not doing it. You have to say, well, are, are, are these two separate entities? How do you finance them? What happens if one is producing and one isn't? Um, so I do think it brings a lot of um, it brings some some potential problems. It solves others. So I think um, that uh, that is something that that we're going to see more and more of. And be it batteries or hydrogen, I think it really depends on what the cost is at the time. They will serve the same purpose. Okay, thanks, for that, Nicholas. Um, maybe maybe one more for me, uh, and then we've we've got a number of questions in from the audience. So uh, we'll we'll need to get to those, but. Mark, coming back to you, um, I know RBC actually signed its own long-term PPA um, from a solar project in Canada, and I think it's the uh, the first Canadian bank to do that. Can you talk around what 
drove that decision and uh, what other corporates can can learn about uh, yeah, what, what RBC has done and what drove that uh, decision for RBC. Sure, yeah, this, this was a, a key initiative of RBC. It, it, it did take some time to come together, but the fact that, that it did in the midst of, of, of the market disruption and these are both financing and power markets. The market disruption of COVID uh, and closed last July was uh, was a testament to the to the commitment of RBC and its partners on the project, Blue Earth Renewables and, and Bullfrog. Um, the, the chosen PPA and, and, and the project itself aligns with and supports many RBC goals. Uh, we, we wanted our PPA commitment to create the addition of, of new renewables capacity um, as opposed to you know subscribing for for existing capacity, so that that kind of uh, you know defined a, a greenfield uh, approach here. We wanted the project to be in a place where RBC has significant operations and and where we can support the the communities that that we work in, and we and we wanted to work with partners that we trusted to execute, which was uh, you know a pretty headline. Um, a transaction for for RBC. So so we now we have two solar projects comprising 39 megawatts of capacity getting constructed in in southern Alberta by by Blue Earth Renewables. Uh, Blue Earth is a is a developer that RBC has a really good history with. We started financing their projects in in 2014, and we've grown with them and supported them with with financing and an advisory mandates since then. And 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 you know hence an entity that we we trust to get get a project done. The, the PPA is for part of the capacity of, of, of those two sites. It's, um, it's less than 10 years. It's a typical virtual PPA with, you know, generically a, a, a contract for differences style approach, which, which works in, in the Alberta energy only market. Um, it, it also provides for a, a price and a tenor which suits both RBC's needs for for um, uh, its 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 electricity consumption portfolio, and but as well allows our developer partner to achieve um, uh, achieve financing for the project. Um, you know, our RBC, this is all part and parcel of of uh, longer term. I wouldn't say longer term. So you know, we we have twenty twenty five goals. So they're they're actually quite immediate. Um, in, in terms of getting to specific uh, targets of reducing um, our GHG by 70% in our operations, using renewable and non-emitting sources um, uh, for 100% of our needs as well by 2025. And, and we, we have a goal of, of having provided $100 billion of sustainable finance by 2025. So the project financings we've done with Blue Earth and, and many other renewable uh, projects uh, you know, comprises what, uh, what now is, is, is very good progress towards that $100 billion target. Um, but it, it does take, a, you know, I, I, I guess the advice is it, it does, especially for greenfield projects for for a corporate, that does take a while to, I think, develop the relationship, find, find the, the sweet spot uh, the the right partner for the project, all the while knowing that you know for large corporates putting out um, putting out a, a PPA um, is it's 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 a rare commodity. It's a valuable commodity, and running an efficient kind of auction process, if you will, amongst developers to to get it financed uh, or to get to get to to get the, the the project built is 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 an important process. Hi, Nicolaus. If, if we go back to renewable PPS, can you talk uh, a, a little bit about the 
specifics of the uh, Spanish PPA market, which is one of the uh, largest in Europe at the moment. Do you also have any views of how big the global PPA market could become? And which countries are, are you seeing more growth at the moment? So I think um, we certainly haven't reached the ceiling in, in any real sense. What we've seen is that the more PPAs being signed, the more off-takers become available and more volumes are signed long-term. Uh, I think also driven by the fact that you know, everyone is doing what their competition is doing. So if one, per if one person is buying long-term, then others will as well. Um, so I think maybe going beyond, so Spain certainly will continue. We're seeing a lot of projects coming online. They will need PPAs. Um, and pricing is, is really just a function of the, the value of the electricity and how cheaply people can build. And as long as, let's say, the, the, the cost of, of, of construction isn't, uh, doesn't fall uh, or doesn't go above the PPA price, then we'll see a lot more signing. Mm -hmm. the, sec the, 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 the Spanish sector is incredibly professional. It has built up experience over many, many years, meaning that... Um, that the, the continuous improvement is driving down LCOE significantly. Obviously, technology prices dropping and, and cheaper panels and so on is also a big part of it. So as, as long as we see that trend, we're definitely going to see more PPAs being signed. And also, just the sheer pressure of investment. There are so many projects, and there's a lot of money behind, so they will also be, uh, um, be people that are willing to sign. Maybe then moving on from Spain and a general point of view, um, Spain was a, was the most interesting PPA market for unsubsidized assets because we came from a history of um, um, we came from a history of subsidies, a very simple business model and a very lucrative one. So we saw loads of projects being developed, and suddenly it was too lucrative. We saw cuts, and suddenly no one knew what was going to happen next. So the PPAs really became a necessity from the market because the projects were there, the demand was there, so so it just needs to be put together. So I think if we look globally, all countries that have a, an electricity market have a, some sort of demand. We're going to see that, um, that those countries should move towards PPAs as well. And maybe looking at a country like Italy, and, and Greece as well are going to be probably those countries we're going to see the most immediate development in because uh, neither country's subsidy schemes will support the sheer amount of projects being developed. So we're, we're, we're going to see definite massive growth in, in probably across the board. I, I, don't see, I don't see many countries where we're not going to see um, uh, and renewable projects being built in the in the medium term anyway. Um, then we might end up with certain markets like Cyprus, which has very little general consumption. So they will eventually have to oversaturate quicker than others. But I think in general, most uh, renewables are still only a small part of the general consumption. Thanks, Dan Nicholas. Um, question from the audience. Um relatively topical one on on the current situation in Texas. Uh, maybe this is one for you, Kim, and uh, yeah, what, what 
what's happened there, I guess, at first, and then what learnings can we can we take from what's been going on in Texas? It's all about supply and demand, right? Okay, so first of all, why, where has the demand come from? The answer is polar vortex. Look it up. It's quite straightforward. Um, there's an interesting... CNN even did a little, uh, you know, how to explain what's going on. Basically, cold air has seeped from the Arctic all the way in the Northern Hemisphere. We, we already had our little uh, winter wonderland here in Madrid, which is where I'm based. Uh, everything was snowed under. It was like being in a skiing park. So I do sympathize with what's going on in Texas. The price of gas went through the roof, and so did the electricity price. That was a microcosm, and Texas is a lot more serious because they're completely unprepared for the type of weather that has been that that they that they've actually suffered. Um, so, to cut a long story short, there was a lot of uh, restrictions. That's the demand, so it's being driven up by the fact that people use electricity for warm for warming themselves up. The second aspect is on the supply side, which is and there has been some complaints about how renewables were not able to deal with the chill. Um, actually, a lot of the thermal generators were having a lot of trouble as well. So in the end, you basically had the crunch of a situation where demand went up uh, much higher than uh, uh, than expected when supply dropped. And then the other problem is that ERCOT, I mean, ERCOT, there's a Western interconnect and Eastern interconnect in the, in, in the United States. And then ERCOT, which is Texas, operates its own little grid. I should say it's not a little grid, it's a pretty big grid. But the thing is, they couldn't rely on any, because they're not interconnected with anybody else, they couldn't use any excess generation from neighbors. So they basically found themselves, um, you know, basically between a rock and a very, but a very, very hard place. The only solution to that, um, when you have these type of problems, is that the prices go through the roof. So you have, and, and at the same time, because they never had enough supply, not only did the prices go through the roof, but actually the lights are going out as well. So they're using a system of rolling brownouts to basically make sure that the whole system doesn't collapse. Because actually re-energizing a big electricity system takes a lot of time. So what they're trying to do is control that process by basically limiting power to different areas around the grid. But in close, it's a, it's pretty it's pretty disastrous. It's about it, it's one of these sort of one in a hundred, one in a thousand years. It doesn't matter. The thing is that it, it, the, the way that the market in Texas is organized does not sort of pay. It didn't pay for the generators to basically winter protect their equipment. Or, you know, they also don't have a capacity market, which would have, would have basically kept a capacity on a standby for when there is a sudden uh, supply demand mis imbalance. Um, they do most of the time have one of the cheapest electricity, retail electricity prices in North America. But the consequence, well, I should say, other than Canada with... With the, with all the hydro up in Quebec and stuff like that, but apart from that, they're 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 the the problem with supply and demand is one that they're willing to pay the minimum amount most of the time, and unfortunately, they've just basically run out of juice. Yeah, it's Mark here. I, I think just just to add to that. I mean, I mean, first of all, like uh, my 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 sympathies to uh, uh, my colleagues and, and and clients and friends in um, in in Texas. Uh, I've been talking to some of them, and and hopefully last night some of them finally got water and power back after after at least two two days of of, of lacking it. Um, but it's it's really a, yeah a question of of what insurance premium do you effectively want to pay to harden your infrastructure and and uh, you know how extreme of a black swan event do you need to plan for in, in in the Gulf Coast it's it's typically hurricanes and such that are are the main concern but but things like this happen I mean this this polar vortex started um, you know a, a week ago in, in northern Canada and and uh, in the heart of you know the the oil and gas production complex here temperatures got to minus 40 minus 45 Celsius 
but the whole oil and gas and, and even renewables, hydro and wind complex continued to function because the assets um, you know, were, were, were designed for that and when, and, and when they were built, uh, you know, paid up for, for, to achieve reliability in those kinds of conditions. So it's, it's definitely obviously doable. It's just the cost of, you know, is it worth paying that insurance premium? Um, and I think, you know, uh, the, the, the premium achieved if you're a generator or a gas storage owner in the last few days, uh, you know, if somebody was to look at it from purely economic terms, potentially there's 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 some rationale to to um, to harden up assets and 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 be able to produce and, and those kinds of high return uh, periods. Yeah, and you got that question. Must be, what's the value of capacity and what's the value of energy? So you know, ultimately, you're paying for something that you don't know you'll necessarily need daily. And 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 a lot of people. It depends also on the political nuance, right? So ERCOT have, well, are going to definitely have some interesting. Conver the, the, I mean, the Reliability Council are going to have some interesting conversations with respect to how try to you know what is it going to be worth to try and avoid these type of events in the future? Because certainly, well, in the context of climate change, it's not really climate change per se, but it's the volatility of what may or may not happen that will have to be borne in mind in future. And, and maybe to bring it back to. You know, financing um, would these sort of events cause defaults potentially for anybody, or uh, is it? Do, do the banks look through these one-off events? I I mean, typically, I mean, it's such a short-term event, right? So whether it even affects financial uh, returns, um, I mean, what what it comes down to is force, is, you know, are they force majeure events? How how is force majeure treated in in, in PPAs in particular uh, circumstances? You know, I, I don't think any offtake party is unless they've got other, you know, another agenda, uh, you know, look to exercise to terminate contracts based on on this. And I, and I, and I doubt something like this would give them the, the right to either. So I, I don't think it's ultimately anything that's even going to feed through to to banks needing to make a decision. If anything, it'll affect the vertically integrated generators. So retailers who've be, who are buying from the market and then selling to final consumers, they're the ones that will have agreed a set price with the with the with the final users, but they're buying at spot prices, which are you know north of five thousand dollars per megawatt hour. I mean that's that's I mean, the premium is just completely ridiculous. So unless they get some sort of see through, there's, there'll be a lot less retail competition in in Texas with the, the, the next year. That that's one possibility. So moving now to another question from the audience, uh, probably this uh, as well from uh, Mark on financing. No? Uh, can you talk about the emerging role of uh, royalty financing in the renewable markets uh, across regions? Uh, sorry, across what? Regions. Oh, regions. Um, I, I, I don't think that we're uh, familiar uh, necessarily with that in, in the North American context. I don't, I don't know if one of the other panelists would... Uh would have perspectives on that. I haven't heard about it in the context of, uh, of Spain, if that's one of the questions. Um, they, uh, here we tend to be, and, and here we're a lot less sophisticated with respect to the use of different types of products, by the way. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's leave that one and move on. Um, another one here around companies that sign uh, PPAs with themselves, e.g., uh, BP buying power from BP projects. Um, in terms of securing project financing, is this seem, seen in the same light as projects that are signing PPAs with third parties? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've seen that happen in, in other sectors. Uh, um, you know, somebody developing an LNG project may may just build it as as uh, as, as a project of your uh, you know an IOC or a super major build a project to to process your own equity uh, gas, or you might decide to contract effectively with yourself as an off taker, and and that allows you to put project financing on it. So, um, you know, we, we've seen that in other other sectors where a sponsor is also an off taker to the project, either partially or sometimes fully, just to financially engineer uh, a certain capital uh, capital approach to it. So, so you know, doing that as well in, in the renewable sector should should not be an issue. And and, and the other uh, thing I think we see, we see a lot of in the in the midstream space is is E and P companies who own midstream assets, and, and this has been a, a, a you know very high volume trend in the last few years, selling those midstream assets. Um, to uh, typically you know, pension fund, infrastructure fund um, counterparties, and then contracting back to use them because they're effectively dedicated to that, you know, that single E&P company contracting back to use them for the, for the long term. So it might be a partial interest. Uh, and, and so there's lots of examples of, of, of you know, of, of continuing to own at least a partial interest, continuing to have, uh, you know, governance. Um, but also being the you know the sole the sole off taker to to the asset. Um, we we see that type of sort of strategic play by the big oil and gas uh, companies here in Spain. So they're trying to move and become greener in their sourcing of energy, and they're also moving downstream into dealing with final consumers. So they're they're, they're developing their retail side of the business, and then they're looking to switch away from say gas generation and oil and gas in general exploration EMP, and they're basically doing that type of process, which is. Yeah, but they're actually being dictated, if you will, a little bit from the top. It's a strategic imperative to deploy additional capacity, which is renewable. And by definition, when it comes down to financing the projects, voila, you have basically a credit-worthy offtaker. So as long as there's a, so in effect, there can be a sort of, uh, sort of gov if the PPA is being uh, um, uh, procured uh, the, from the buying side with someone that's credit-worthy, I mean, my view is that the Spanish banks look at these things quite favorably. Hi. So probably one last question from uh, this time for uh, Ken. Uh, you know, uh, what do you think could be the the, the impact of uh, carbon prices, uh, uh, cost of capital in the price formation of uh, power prices in the long term? And after all, uh, do you think that uh, the, the the current marginal system is uh, is going to be? Uh, applied in the long term, or that uh, needs a, a reform. No? Yeah. So, so th there there is some discussion in Spain because people tend to well talk with their heart rather than their heads. Um, the issue around uh, the marginal pricing, which seems to get a bad name, it's a bit like talking about capitalism in South America. It's, everything looks very bad, very liberal, if you will. The, it basically fails to understand the issue that it's about allocating resources in the most cost-effective manner. So the marginal pricing market is not going to go away. The thing is whether the market as a standalone 
energy only market is enough to basically survive with a situation where we have a lot of renewables on the system because we know that their marginal cost of operating is actually very, very low. So we do have to find a different source of potential revenue, whether that is by using, you know, in a transitional phase, uh, whether it's by simply by right by signing the PPAs, whether it's by having a capacity market, whether it's using a market of green certificates, you know, backed up by renewable portfolio standards. It doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, um, both investors and, and financiers will be wise to the fact that there isn't just going to be one source of income that's going to be the energy price. There'll be a number of them and they'll have to take a view on, on how that's going to be deployed. At the European level, um, we, we have a very sort of um, an integrated European market in the sense that you can trade and sell electricity just about anywhere. However, uh, every market is unique and there are transmission constraints between points A and B. So it's not that the electrons are going to get from here to there, um, a little bit like North America. So from that perspective, it's one to watch. And I think from that perspective, there are some lessons to be learned, uh, interesting lessons. to. And I'm not talking about the Texas example I'm, I'm, I'm in general, by the way, uh, about how it is that the market may be designed and how things will evolve in the future. We can certainly expect to see changes from that perspective, because as it stands, an energy only market has we, we can't just rely on price spikes as, 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 as we may see from time to time. I don't think it'll 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 sell. It'll, it won't sell in, in the sort of in the politics of this particular type of environment. Uh, the problem is that sometimes the politicians here in Europe are a little bit too dirigiste for my liking. And what that implies is that they're basically pushing for capacity and deployment of renewables without thinking what the impact's going to be on, say, allowing the market to get there, which will probably would, would probably would arrive, whether it's through PPAs, whether it's just deploying the structure. So uh, regulation, I, I'd like uh, regulation to be a little bit, a bit, a little bit less dirigiste and a bit more enabling. So we let, but let's hopefully see them sort of rewire themselves. Ultimately, Spain and Portugal, for example, cannot make the rules of what the market will look like. It all depends on what the European Union at the, at the, in Brussels effectively says with respect to what the appropriate market designs will be. And they're definitely going to stick to a marginal market type pricing market. But whether that's for energy or capacity or other types of incomes, we shall see. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Kim. And uh, thank you to uh, both Mark and Nicholas as well for all their insights. We are uh, up against it in terms of time, so we better call it a day there. Uh, I'll just take the opportunity to highlight the, the next event in the Navigating the Energy Transition series. That'll be on the 11th of March, uh, and we'll be focusing on renewable natural gas. So please look out for, for that invite. But in the meantime, uh, thanks again to all the speakers and, and best wishes to, to everyone who joined today. Thank you. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.